which is to really think about what would you like me to talk about tonight? What would be the most important thing, most interesting thing, most vital thing, most alive part of the Dharma, of your practice, of what's happening for you? Could be the most confusing part of the Dharma, could be the most uh, exciting part of the Dharma or your practice. And everybody has to come up with at least one topic. Um, so let's start by talking about um, yoga and Buddhism. And I, I want to start there because um, it, brings, it brings in a few different um, questions that come up, which is first of all about um, mixing practices. What does it mean to have more than one practice or different kinds of practice? And it seems, especially for us as lay people, um, in our time and place, and especially in our culture, in Western culture at this time, we have this um, rare opportunity to practice and to be exposed to many, many, many spiritual traditions, contemplative traditions, religions, um, different ways, different um, riches of the world's heritage of how human beings have sought to address suffering, to understand themselves, to realize freedom. Um, and it, it's actually a very rich um, time and place, oddly enough. And so we have yoga, we have qigong, we have tai chi as movement practices we're, that are, we're exposed to. Um, we have all kinds of esoteric practices, mystical Christ, Christian practices, uh, mystical Jewish practices like Kabbalah, uh, Islamic practices, Sufi practice are available to us. Um, and, th and they're all good, as far as I can tell. And I've definitely dabbled in more than one. Um, What's tricky is maturing a practice. And maturing a practice takes a certain amount of commitment, a certain amount of time, a certain amount of devotion, a certain amount of consistency, a certain amount of going past what we know, of going beyond what's comfortable with the practice, letting the practice take us beyond ourselves in some way. And um, it actually works differently for different people. For some people, they could do more than one practice and deepen those practices. For some people, they just start dabbling and no practice actually deepens. And so it's a, and then practice becomes frustrating. Um, with yoga particularly, with the movement practices particularly, I think they work really well with basic Buddhist practice because part of basic Buddhist practice is movement. Um, yoga has its own internal um, intelligence that I'm not 
really, I'm, I'm not an excellent, you know, I do a little yoga. And I do it, you know, because it's both good for the body and it's good for embodiment. How do we actually get in our bodies? How do we get present in the body? In my understanding of yoga, it really calls for mindfulness. And that um, in uh, Spirit Rock, there was just a retreat, uh, I believe it was a 10-day retreat for 100 yoga teachers to teach them about meditation. Um, because they attempt to teach it, but they haven't had any training. And so I think yoga and, and mindfulness are a very good fit. I actually think qigong and mindfulness are a good fit, or tai chi and mindfulness are a good fit. I also think athletics and mindfulness are a good fit. Running, swimming, bike riding, I think dance, any, anything that moves helps us move and then we start to bring our attention to and refine that attention is very helpful part of practice. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, one of the most difficult and maybe long-term uh, um, parts of practice that's needed is to learn how to really land our consciousness in our bodies. So that mindfulness is not a disembodied uh, activity. That we really root in the physical. We really learn, learn to land here and let that become a basis for the expansion of awareness. And, mind, and yoga, one of the things I've seen with yoga, as well with just sitting practice, if you really do it, is that it'll start to um, deconstruct your idea of your body. It'll deconstruct the um, way we um, solidify ourselves around our body, or solidify the idea that we are the body, or solidify the notion that the body is a thing that's um, I can't quite say it, that's solid or that's concretized in some way. And it's actually true of any good athletic practice will do that also. Where you start to see the body is much more mysterious than we know. It's much more fluid, it's alive, it's not a static entity. And to start to sense the what what's talked about in yoga and many of the contemplative traditions as the inner body, the inner sense of body, the inner sense of physical presence, which is very important for concentration, for samadhi, for collectedness. And then to also begin to see that our consciousness is not bound by our bodies. Our consciousness is not bound by our bodies. And in some sense, that's a very simple understanding. If it was, it means you wouldn't be able to understand anything I was saying. Because your consciousness would be limited to right here. And it's not. It's actually very open. So that even from far away, you can, we have this um, <clears throat> capacity to commune together because consciousness is quite broad, quite open. 
And we know it through the ear door very easily or the eye door. That's a little bit of thought about the body. And I like to start there because I think the body is always a good basis for practice. A really strong, it's the first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body. And it's not just mindfulness of the body in the seated posture, it's mindfulness of the body in what the Buddha called all postures, which includes any movement we make. Any movement we make. To be aware, one teacher said, if we could just be aware of this, and he just move, would move his arm back and forth, to be really aware of this, you could be enlightened. What's actually happening with this? That there's some intention in the mind and then the body moves. It's pretty amazing. And of course, then there's a whole question of there's intention of the mind and the body moves as long as the body is capable of moving. So there's the limitations of the body, the temporality of the body, the fact that the body is impermanent. Now, one of the things that happens or can happen when we really, when we begin to land in our body and become really mindful of our body, and you can do this right now, even while you're listening to me, feel your body, feel your butt on the cushion or the floor or your feet or your you know, rear in the chair. Feel your hands touching, feel the cloth on your skin, feel the... Feel the uh, breath of your body. And you'll notice that if you really focus on that, more than my words, you'll still hear my words, but focus on the body, on the, on the heat or coolness or whatever is present for you. And it's already, it's a, it's a reorientation. It's a recentering of the awareness where you sit. And this is important, and it's why the body is so important is because where you sit is where realization will be found, where enlightenment will be found, where nirvana will be found. It's not actually in the Buddha's words. The Buddha's words are pointing towards you, towards your actual experience, towards your immediate experience, towards what's, what's happening here now. And all our practice is to support that turning or returning back to here. In fact, the Buddha starts many of his um, teachings. He says, here, monks, nuns, here. And then he goes on to give a teaching because here is so important. Here is the basis both for the teaching and for the realization of the teaching. And in that way, our bodies become um, the foundation of our practice and the foundation of our realization. And when we begin to land in our bodies in this way and um, um, become more familiar with the mystery of our body and the magic of our body or the magic of being embodied may be a better way to say it. Uh, 
and we start to see with some repeated practice what it means to center, what it means to ground, what it means to land here, what it means for awareness to open from the body, open out from, from this center, and the kind of um, samadhi that comes with body practice. Samadhi, the word samadhi is mostly translated as concentration. Concentration is not such a great word, but it's like the best we have in in the West. Um, samadhi, the other words mean to be collected or composed or centered or unified, a unification. Well, a good definition of samadhi is a unification of body and mind. And that sense of unification is um, uh, very pleasurable, very delightful, very relaxing, very enjoyable. It makes not only being here, it makes meditating enjoyable when we discover the, the pleasure of samadhi itself of the pleasure of having a unified mind so that we're not all distracted all over the place. And, you know, we're all going to be distracted plenty, but there's practice can bring the capacity to learn how to unify. And when those kind of capacities start to develop or start to mature, that we start to build the muscle of samadhi, or the muscle of mindfulness, it begins to bring um, faith. And the faith is not a faith in God or a faith in some idea uh, or even faith in the Buddha, although that may come at some point. But the faith that's emphasized in Buddhism is what's called verified faith which means the faith in our own experience, the faith that we discover through practice and through our realization. And there's, there's actually different levels of faith. And maybe the first level of faith is to be inspired by the Buddha's teachings or the Buddha or the Dalai Lama and say, okay, I, I really, that sounds good. I believe that. But that's not that that's a good place to start but it's definitely not enough because at a certain point of belief it's helpful to get started but it won't take us to freedom it won't take us to what we seek to realization or wholeness and so practice then brings the the challenges of our reality, the challenges of our psyche, the challenges of our conditioning, and to meet with practice, to intermingle with practice, and then to begin to see practice work is what brings faith. To see that mindfulness works, that we can actually sit with what's uncomfortable or what's difficult um, or what's frightening or what's um, painful, or, or not simply that, not only that, not only do we learn to open to the vicissitudes of human life and the difficulties of being a human being, but also we begin to open, we see that even there's more capacity to open to the joy, or the love, or the pleasure, or the delight, or the happiness of being a human being. 
that that joy or that delight is not limited, is not bounded, is not um, circumscribed by our circumstances, are not bound by our circumstances, and that the heart's capacity to love is actually infinite. And when we start having some of those experiences, when we start actually seeing that, that brings a tremendous amount of faith. And that faith is not about what somebody told us or what somebody wrote or what somebody said is good or right, but we start to know something in our own experience. We know it directly. We know it immediately. And so this is faith as a power. And this is where it's one of the five spiritual powers, faith or trust. It brings a great sense of trust and faith in the practice and also in our capacity to continue, our capacity to deepen in the Dharma. Now one of the difficulties with faith is people, is we, people, we, do what we tend to do with everything is we try to concretize it. We try to make it a permanent thing. And faith, faith ebbs and flows at times. Faith is stronger and weaker at times. <coughs> faith ultimately asks us to have faith even when we feel unfaithful. In other words, even when we feel discouraged, to have enough faith to practice with discouragement. So it brings us into the realm of paradox. And paradox, of course, will be at the heart of the Dharma. How is it that we can live in a world where there's so much suffering? How is it that the Buddha lived in a world of suffering and found freedom and happiness in the midst of it? How is that possible? So people ask questions about, for example, can Dharma practice overcome addiction? Yes and no. Addiction to what? Depends. Depends on the person, depends on the addiction. Dharma practice in and of itself, sometimes it could cure anything. Sometimes it can't. It depends on the specifics. But it may be helpful, especially if we think about, let's say, drug addiction, to understand that the Dharma, um, uh, we can understand different w ways no, let me think if I can, I have enough mind to say this well. That there are different uh, sections or segments of the Dharma. There's the, the Dharma, the wisdom of the Dharma, and then there's also the skillful means of the Dharma. And the skillful means of the Dharma aren't simply limited to what the Buddha taught. I was with Ajahn Jumnian once who was teaching. Ajahn Jumnian's been a monk for, I don't know, probably 50 years now. And Ajahn Jumnian um, 
It's quite a revered Thai forest monk. And at some point, and Ajahn Jumnian, when you, when you practice with Ajahn Jumnian, he talks all the time. He just, he likes to talk, he tells great stories, he talks and talks. Finally, you have to say, Ajahn Jumnian, can we, can we meditate for a little while? And he'll say, oh yeah, sure, sure, because he knows Westerners like to meditate. And, and so he'll stop for a while and then he'll, you know, ring a bell and tell some more stories. So at some point, people were getting tired and he had everybody stand up and he started teaching them this movement. And he was doing this movement. It was very much like Tai Chi or Qigong. And, and somebody afterwards raised their hand and said, well, is that in the Pali Canon? Is that in the traditional text? He said, oh, no, no. He said, my Chinese grandfather taught me that. He said, whatever works is the Dharma. Whatever works is the Dharma. So in terms of healing addiction, if whatever works is the Dharma, then the Dharma can overcome addiction. Let's say drug addiction. Um, the Buddha was very clear that the Dharma can help us overcome the addiction to self. The addiction to the belief in a separate sense of self into some self-entity that's permanent or fixed. And he helped people do that through all the skillful means that he offered. And he said, he said, and he said, don't just believe me though. Don't just believe what I say. Don't just believe what's written. Don't just believe sages or saints, but practice for yourself Practice diligently and then see if that's true. See what happens. <clears throat> but, and part of Dharma practice in relation to addiction, whether it's coffee or whatever it might be, um, all the principles of the Dharma can begin to be applied to see that even addiction is impermanent. Right? It's not permanent addiction. We're addicted as long as we're addicted. It's like somebody said um, they practice celibacy most of the time. <laughs> I don't know if this is a great analogy for addiction. But <laughs> what I mean by that, because I know that in the, in the culture, in the culture of working with addiction, you say you're an addict and you're an addict, right? You're an addict whether you're using or not. And, and I know that's very helpful. But when you're not using, you're not using. And so whatever is skillful, whatever helps, whatever supports helps one overcome addiction. Faith also can wane or falter when our daily practice starts to falter. It's almost like, especially at the beginning, people get really excited about practice and they practice a lot. People will practice um, at the beginning, when I was first practicing, I would sit five times a day. I was very inspired. 
and then I watched my practice begin to wane. And I went down to four times a day, or three times a day, or two times a day, then one time a day. I was very upset about it. I was very unhappy. I was losing my practice. I thought it was all over. This was about 25 years ago. And then I went to Zen teacher and I had a little dokusan with the Zen teacher where you go meet with him and I was telling him my, my practice, I was losing my practice, I was a little weepy about it. I was upset, you know, that I was losing my practice and, and he <coughs> turned away for a moment and then he turned back to me and he just said, lose it. And that was a really great teaching, really great teaching. So lose your practice. See if you can lose it. See if your practice is simply limited to sitting meditation. See if your practice, um, see if your practice might ultimately have more to do with suffering and freedom from suffering. if your sitting practice is waning or going down, you can, you can tinker with it, you could play, you can do things to get inspired, but also you could let it go. But see what happens, pay attention, whether you're sitting or not. Pay attention to what happens if you don't sit. Pay attention to what happens if you do sit. There's many different ways to practice the Dharma. Sitting practice is very important, very helpful. But simply to pay attention to our suffering now. How are we suffering right now? What's your suffering as you sit here? Are you bored? Are you tired? Are you restless? Can you pay attention to that? And then pay attention what happens if the restlessness relaxes and you settle down. Or what happens if it gets bigger, you feel even more restless, you start to get irritated. You know, Ajahn Chah didn't teach so much sitting practice. He, you know, he taught some. But mostly he taught people to watch their minds, watch their state of minds, their state of being to pay attention to ourselves in a way, not in a way that's critical or harsh, but to actually see what's happening here now. Where are we suffering? Jack Kornfield talks about he used to walk around to people on long meditation retreats when he would come visit in the West. They'd be doing walking meditation, you know, and he'd walk up to them and he'd say, are you suffering? Are you having a good time? They're doing their walking meditation. You know, he'd say, I hope you're not suffering now. He always thought those long meditation retreats that we do looked like being kind of the wards of a, of a mental hospital or something. <laughs> People walking around, not talking. <laughs> My point is that there's a lot of ways to practice so at sometimes sitting won't be the primary way. 
And so when that happens, keep paying attention. Your mind, your mindfulness, your awareness is always here, is always available. The meditation is not an end in and of itself. It serves, it serves to develop a myriad of kinds of qualities um, that we want to mature that bring about awakening. And they can be matured in other areas. You can mature patience just by being patient with your family, which is a great practice for everybody. Or being patient with your friends or your coworkers. And of course, if you sit for 10 days or a month or three months, you'll learn a tremendous amount about patience. And then the next step is to transpose what you've learned from the cushion and bring it to your family, bring it to your lover, your partner, your husband, your wife, whatever relationships you're in. Let's see what else we have. Somebody asked about speech. Another of the practices that sitting practice helps with. Sitting practice helps in this way. It learns, it teaches us to learn how to be with our experience and not have to act on it. It teaches us how to sit with our anger, our reactivity, our fear, our judgment. It teaches us how to be with the um, states, and states of heart and mind that are the causes of suffering. And it gives us the opportunity to then see, to then have some choice. How do we want to act? How do we want to respond? If we can pay attention to what's happening, we can see how we can make choice. We can choose how are we going to how are we going to be in this situation? What's appropriate in this situation? What's needed in this situation? And it's, it, means, it means we may see that we have a reaction, totally pissed off, but we may not want to respond from that reaction. There may be some other place we want to respond from. We may see we're afraid, but it doesn't mean we have to be at the mercy of the fear. We see fear for what it is. It's a mind state. It's a mental state. It's a sense of shakiness in the body. A sense of doubt of the capacity or confidence that we may have. But with mindfulness, we don't have to be bound by that. Because mindfulness itself is not bound by what it knows. To be aware of fear means that there's something that's aware of the fear. There's something here that's aware of the anger, aware of the desire, aware from, of the reactivity. That awareness is but not bound by the reactivity or by the fear. So, speech is a very important question in the Buddha's 
teaching. Right speech is one of the aspects of the Eightfold Noble Path. Mindful speech is in the teachings on mindfulness of the body. It's a mindfulness of the body practice. To be mindful in speaking and keeping silent, the Buddha says. So mostly right now, you're doing the keeping silent mindfulness practice and I'm doing the speaking mindfulness practice. And it's, it's, it's a demanding practice. If it's a mindfulness of the body practice, it means feeling your body, being aware of your body while you're listening. Not just enthralled with the words, not just enthralled with your reaction to the words, but being aware of the physical presence that is aware of the sounds, the words, and, and the thoughts that come. That is the center or container or ground for the awareness in that way. And then the questions that was raised was about, did you ask that question about, yeah, about um, um, being honest and honesty, um, the Buddha didn't, uh, although honesty was very important, truthfulness is very important in right speech, it's not the only factor. There are balancing factors. So being truthful at the wrong time is not right speech. Being truthful and it's not helpful is not right speech in the Buddha's teaching. So it's really what the Buddha is saying is if we're actually present, if we're actually here, we can develop the capacity to be sensitive to a myriad factors of what speech might be appropriate. And, and that means sometimes that speech might be keeping silent. And sometimes that speech might be saying no. And sometimes that speech might be very... Um, loving. But there's not a rule book out there saying, oh, this is right speech and this is wrong speech so much, as there is the possibility for us developing a presence that's sensitive to the moment because we're in the moment. We're not in the past. We're not in the future. We're not caught in our ideas or our beliefs or our imagination or our conditioning. But we're actually so here we're so present that when we speak, it's responding to the person, to what's needed, to what's helpful. And the articulation then becomes attuned to the moment. And it's why the moment becomes, is so important in our meditation practice. The capacity to be in the moment, not, not in the past, not in the future. Because reality is happening now. It's not happening in the past. It's not happening in the future. And so to find our own voice, did you ask, who asked about voice? Way in back, okay, yeah. So to find our own voice is, is really quite important. Who else is going to find your voice, right? And I, and I mean it a little bit seriously. The Dharma has a beautiful capacity to recognize both the universal and the personal. 
And by universal is the Dharma, the wisdom of the Dharma sees the universality of beings, the universality of what we seek as beings. But at the same time, we see the uniqueness of each being. The diversity, not simply by culture or religion or race, the diversity of all beings, the uniqueness of each being. And so part of Dharma practice, um, it, it's not like, oh, you have to find your own voice. But if you actually find the Dharma, you naturally find your own voice. Because you find yourself in the most true way, as a, as a unique expression of the universal. As a unique expression of this universal um, truth that we would call Buddha nature or true nature. That we are all an expression of this and the expression has its uniqueness. And all you have to do is look around the room to see the uniqueness. I mean, just take a look. I know people don't like to do this, but go ahead for a second. <laughs> take a look, see who's here. Look at the, really look at the people, at the difference. And you can see the suffering of people if you look at them. And you can see the beauty of people if, you really, if we're really here. The difference and the, the whatever, the forms, the shapes. But you can also see much more than the form and the shape. You can see the history. You can see the histories of mankind, humankind, in all of us. And so, one of the, probably the only, or let me say it this way, the best thing I ever wrote was this line. I said, the Buddha became the Buddha by being the Buddha. It's a very Zen line. <laughs> I like that. He was himself all the way beyond himself. He was himself, he was, he became the truth of who he was. And for us, the goal, the trajectory of practice is the same, to become the truth of what we are, in essence, fundamentally, of what the depth of who and what we are is. And in that process, we will find our own voice. We, it's, it's, it's interwoven and it's why if you, if you look at Dharma teachers, they all have different things to say. They all say it differently. And it's not because they're actually disagreeing, although they do. It's because it's coming through a, a unique voice. And it's why even in, even in Buddhism, Buddhism is totally diverse as a teaching. Right? I mean, you can, there's Thai forest tradition, and then there's the Burmese monastic tradition, and then there's the Tibetan, you know, this school of, the, you know, there's so many different schools in Tibetan Buddhism. The same unique voice, those not, or the not same unique voice coming through different peoples, different times, different places, because 
the Dharma is only alive in the reality of now. It's not alive as an old thing. It's not alive because the Buddha spoke, you know, 2,600 years ago. It's alive because the teachings have something real to give us. And that reality um, is always changing depending on time, place, and people. And so the voice has to be unique, has to be our own. And part of that uniqueness is different people will speak to different parts of the Dharma. And for some people, speaking to the war is really important. Speaking to the escalating violence in our world is very important. Whether it's in Iraq or whether it's in the Sudan or whether it's in Israel and Palestine or whether it's in... um, Burma, you know, the violence against the monks and the movement towards freedom, or just the violence in our own country, in our own cultures, the, the kind of bizarre um, suffering of the richness of America. You know, America's uh, um, leaking of its violence throughout the different cultures, whether it's happening in the African-American culture, in the high schools, or, you know, in the post office, or wherever it's happening. I I mean, this is a little my own ideas here, but it just seems like a kind of cancer in our culture, in our time and place, indicating some unhealthiness in our culture. And so how to, how to practice with it. You actually can read a lot about how the Buddha practiced with war. Who asked me about war? Was that? Yeah, okay, got it. Um, it's very interesting to read the suttas and see where the Buddha helped stop war through his interventions and where he can't stop it at times. And, um, and then the whole question about stopping the war inside and how that affects humanity and then also acting. And it's not one or the other. Both are needed. Both are needed. This actually was, is a great article in I think it's this month's Buddha Dharma magazine by Bhikkhu Bodhi. It's online and you can look it up but it's called The Challenge to Buddhists. And it's about acting in the face of the suffering of the world today. And it's, it's a very beautiful article by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is one of the, he's probably the oldest Western monastic, um, maybe may in the world, um, and quite respected, and the foremost translator of the Buddhist teachings, or one of the foremost translators. And... Um, like, nobody can challenge Bhikkhu Bodhi's credentials, right? He is a solid Theravadan monk. And he was saying, it's not in the article, but I was talking with somebody, and he was saying to them that he was at a conference with Thich Nhat Hanh and a lot of Mahayana teachers, Tibetan teachers, and he was pushing them about acting in the world more, acting to, to really respond to the suffering of the world more and not just get enlightened 
And it's a very interesting dialectic within the Buddhist community. Do you get enlightened first and then act, or do you act anyways? And um, yeah, it's a, that's a whole nother talk we can do sometime. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, B-O-D-H-I, Bodhi. So I think because of time constraints, we're going to stop there. Um, I have to say just a little bit about equanimity in the midst of intensity because partly we're speaking to that when we talk about war or violence. We're living in an intense time. Um, equanimity doesn't mean that we don't feel things. Equanimity doesn't mean we're not sensitive to things. Equanimity doesn't mean we don't have reactions to things, um, to the intensity of what's happening. It means there is enough balance of mind to be with all of it, to be open to all of it and not have to act on our reaction. Um, um, sometimes people think equanimity means oh, we're just calm and everything's easy. And that's not how I think about equanimity. I think of equanimity means we've developed the, uh, enough balance so we can be turned on our heads and be okay with that at times. That we can actually be in the middle of a lot of intensity. And, and we find our ground even in it. But it doesn't mean that it's easy or we don't feel it all. We don't, we're not um, impinged on by the intensity. We're, we're sensitive beings and we're going to feel it when it's intense. Even the capacity to take one breath in the middle of an intense situation, one conscious breath, is a sign of equanimity. Or to pause before speaking. Or to relax a little bit, even in the middle of big, somebody's really pissed at you, and to really relax in the face of that, even for a moment, is bringing equanimity in the midst of intensity. And we need, we need to develop, to both recognize equanimity for what it is and to develop it, cultivate it, because life is intense. Have you noticed? <laughs> it's intense to be a human being. There's a lot happening with our families, with our friends, with our work. Even when it's good, it's intense to say nothing of the suffering of being a human being, of, sick, of sickness, old age, death, of war, of fear, of greed, of ignorance. This is an intense sadhana, an intense practice to be a human being. We'd like to share the merit of our practice here this evening. Any benefit, the goodness of being together, May we offer it freely. May it go out in every direction, touching beings in this world and every world. In this very body, in this very life, may we be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.